Welcome to Writers Forum, a weekly presentation of WRBHFM. I'm Sherry Alexander, and this week we're talking to Keith O'Brien, author most recently of Fly Girls: How Five Daring Women Defied All Odds and Made Aviation History. Welcome to Writers Forum, Keith. Thanks so much for having me, Sherry. Well, we're glad to see you here in New Orleans. Um, you're doing great. The book is doing great. It's bestseller list. Congratulations. Thank you. I know that's a good feeling. But we, even though you started off in Ohio, we think of you, we claim some of the credit for you because you've, you've worked here twice. I have, yes. And I, I do consider New Orleans, you know, my, my once and forever home. So it's just so great to be back. You worked at the Picayune. I did. Yeah, I was on staff from the Picayune. Uh, got hired in late 1999. Uh, left just months before Katrina. Uh, went to the Boston Globe. Um, but when I left the Globe, uh, I came back here and, and worked here uh, freelance um, is when I got into books and lived here again from tw- 2010 to 2015. And you did some work out at UNO. I did, yeah. I, I was an adjunct professor at UNO and a, and a journalist in, in residence there. Well, um, you've won some awards. You're living in New Hampshire now. You're Correct. Freelance. Yes. So you're at least you're out of the weather. <laughs> until the Except snows, for the snowstorm. Until the snow starts. That's right. Well, your first book. I was really interested. You quit the Globe to write a book about a team, a high school basketball team. What made you want to do that? So my first book was called Outside Shot, and it did chronicle one year in Kentucky high school basketball with all access to a a rural powerhouse team. You know, for me, it had nothing to do with basketball. You know, I'm not actually a huge basketball fan. It, It was really a way to tell a story about a place, you know, in Kentucky, basketball is religion. It is everything. And it is the last state where it has single-class basketball. That means, you know, there is no 5A, 4A, 3A school divisions based on size or, or, or things like that. It is, it is one tournament, one state tournament. And when the playoffs begin in late February in Kentucky, everyone is in but only 16 teams will make it to Rupp Arena, one from each district of that state. And and that makes the tournament at Rupp Arena bigger than life. Uh, Kids and and parents believe that making it there will change their lives. There is just enough truth in that, just enough times that has happened over the years that, um, that it's worth believing. You know, every once in a while in Kentucky, a kid will make it to Rupp Arena, make it to the state tournament, shoot the lights out for four days, and and his life is changed. And so it was a way to tell really a story of a place. Well, I enjoyed reading it. I'm not a big basketball person, but you did it, you did it by focusing on several players, the coach, and you made it, you know, come alive because I felt like I knew these kids. And I don't want to give away the ending, but... I don't think any of those ones that you focused on went on to the bigs. But you really captured the what it was kind of down and out times for Kentucky. Well, not just down and out times for Kentucky, but really for our country. I was there, you know, in the in the heart of the Great Recession, and um, you know, it, this community where I, I was, 
Georgetown, Kentucky was hard hit. Scott County, r- this rural county was hard hit. And, and in a way, it, it was um, uh, uh, an example of, of the problems that people were facing all across this country at that time. Well, then, what inspired you to now take a different tact and write about early female aviators? So I was on an airplane, of all places, ironically, in early spring of 2016, when I stumbled onto this story, I was reading a different book, and I there was one line in this book uh, within a paragraph about daring women in the early part of the 20th century. And the line just mentioned an all-female airplane race in 1929 that had featured Amelia Earhart. And the line just stopped me because I had never heard of such a thing. And... You know, I did at that point what... You had heard of Amelia Earhart, of course. but you didn't hear of the other one. Yeah, but yeah, not not airplane racing, not an all-female airplane race in 1929. So, you know, I just followed it down, and I followed it down. I, I did what journalists do. I pulled the string. And, you know, soon I was sitting in a library living in old microfilm. And when you live in old microfilm from the late 1920s into the 1930s, this whole world emerges that I had no idea existed. It is the world of the air races. 125,000 people would come out paying fans in a single day. Just as many would watch for free from the hoods of their automobiles. Half a million fans in a single weekend. Cities would vie against each other to host the races in the way we vie against uh, each other to host the Super Bowl today. It was that big. And... So, of course, you know, women, young female aviators wanted in. And initially, they were not allowed. Uh, Well, you point out uh, women at the time were not exactly treated like men in any aspect of American life. No. You know, this is something that will probably come as a shock to, to many young people in particular. But in the late 1920s, there were laws, actual laws, that forbade women from doing all sorts of things, from serving on juries, from working night shifts, from driving taxi cabs. Women were banned from as many as 15 different professions at that time, and married women faced a particularly difficult battle. If you were a teacher, an elementary school teacher in the late 1920s, and you were a woman, and you got married, many times you were forced to give up your job. School boards and private schools across this country would only employ single women as teachers because they believed that a married woman was supposed to be at home. This was the time in which you know my story begins, in which female aviators are, are, are not just challenging for equality on the ground, but in the sky, in a place where if you could prove you could fly, if you could prove you could race, then really you, you could prove you could do anything. Well, and I think a statistic you gave is something like there were 27 million women, 12 had licenses when you start your story. Yeah, that, you know, it's true. There were, there were less than 12 women in early 1928 who had a, a pilot's license on file at the Department of Commerce, which was the regulating agency at the time, it's a little bit of a soft number because there were other agencies, private groups that had given licenses in the early 1920s. 
So it, there are, it's probably not capturing all the women in this country, but the fact remains that in 1928, the percentage of women in this country who were flying planes was a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the population here. And they knew each other. They were competitors, but they also um, supported each other. I mean, they all understood what was going on. In your research, you said you did a lot of, in the archives. What else did you do? Well, you know, it starts with the newspaper coverage. You know, if there was an air race in Chicago in 1933, there were six daily newspapers there at the time. So you could really get a, a very interesting three-dimensional view of, of the air races that weekend by, by reading all of the papers. Um, and, and, you know, you could, you could build out the characters in that way, too, you know, by, um, you know, finding everything about Amelia Earhart or finding everything about these other women in the papers. But that isn't enough. And, and in order to, to really understand them, to know their internal thoughts and fears and dreams and, and, you know, what they were fighting for, how hard they were fighting for it, I really did need the archives, the personal archives of these women some were easier to find than others. You know, Amelia Earhart obviously is well known and her archives are too. You can find them at Harvard in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and you can find them at Purdue University in Indiana. They are voluminous and they are detailed. The other women, you know, that really wasn't the case. And early on, one of the great challenges I had was trying to find the archives of these women, you know, e even wondering if they existed. You know, Florence Klingensmith, one of my other main characters, she died young, and I couldn't find her archives anywhere. You know, I, 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 all the usual places didn't have them. The Air and Space Museum, Smithsonian, any aviation museum, all the universities in Minnesota or North Dakota, places where Florence Klingensmith lived, nothing. It was at the small historical society in Moorhead, Minnesota, the town where she lived, that I found her papers, you know, where an archivist there had been collecting them quietly and carefully collecting, you know, details about Florence's life for the last 30 years. What a thrill for a researcher. Well, before you get into the five women, you, you point out that we think we know a lot about Charles Lindbergh, but there's some things we know that are wrong about Charles Lindbergh. And um, for the purpose of your book, the most important thing is he really did not support these women in any way. He, he did not, not, not and, and he did not use the weight of his personality to help them. You know, Charles Lindbergh flies the ocean solo in May 1927. And it's important to remember that Lindbergh didn't just do that for the pioneering spirit of it all. He did it for a jackpot of money. I thought I knew about Lindbergh because, you know, I taught... Um, law and we talk about his kidnapping case the coverage of the case and it led to this ban on cameras and courtrooms so i read all these books about Lindbergh, um and i had no idea that he was doing it for money i mean i just thought it was for the glory and the ticker tape parade and he was this big hero it, but anyway you picked five of the women obviously amelia Earhart, but before her there were um Tell us about some of the, the women. Ruth Elder. Tell us about Ruth Elder. Sure. So Ruth Elder is it comes before Amelia. In in September 1927, just months, four months after Lindbergh has flown the ocean, Ruth Elder, 
who is from Alabama uh, and is on her second marriage now and living in Florida, working at a dentist's office, answering phones. Ruth Elder decides she wants to be the first woman to fly across the ocean. And she breezes onto Long Island just right about this time of year, frankly, September 1927, with a male co-pilot, you know, uh, planning to fly the ocean. It is, you know, one of the biggest stories of the year. You know, Lindbergh has, has captured our imagination in the spring and summer, but it is Ruth Elder and her race, really, against another woman who's been forgotten, Frances Grayson. Uh, their efforts to get across the ocean that fall as the first woman that capture the hearts of America, it, both those women fail, you know, and I don't think I'm, I'm spoiling anything by saying that because it is in their failure, you know, in their failure to make it across that opens the door eight months later for a social worker from Boston named Amelia Earhart. Well, and then tell another Ruth, Ruth Nichols. She was completely different personality and background from Ruth Elder. Ruth Nichols was. She is the daughter of Wall Street wealth in, in New York City. You know, until the stock market crash of 1929, Ruth Nichols and her family have, have money. But Ruth Nichols desperately wants what Amelia Earhart has. And she will, more than any other woman in the early 1930s, really challenge Amelia Earhart for the, for the title of most accomplished female aviator. And by 1931, just objectively speaking, Ruth Nichols has succeeded. She has eclipsed Amelia Earhart. She has the speed record. She has the women's altitude record. And it is Ruth Nichols, not Amelia Earhart, Ruth Nichols, who in June 1931, one year before Earhart will attempt to fly the ocean solo, it is Ruth Nichols taking off, trying to make it across the ocean alone. Well, and then Florence Klingensmith, <clears throat> she had an unhappy, well, we won't give away all the endings here, but as you say, she died young. She did, and unlike Amelia and Ruth Nichols, Florence was known for speed racing, racing in what was known as the pylon races. Imagine small towers placed on the ground in a triangular course, and then imagine planes whipping around those towers at 200 miles an hour, just 75 feet off the ground. That was Florence Klingensmith's game, and she was not just one of the best female pilots in the world at these pylon races. She was one of the best of them all. And it was because of her skill in the cockpit of a plane that race organizers will give Florence Klingensmith in 1933 the opportunity not just to race against women, but, but, to, to, but to race against the men. men. And then Louise Faden, who I think you really liked Louise. I did like Louise. I do. You know, so Louise uh, was really the rarest kind of aviator in these days. She was from Arkansas, and she wasn't just a woman who flew planes. She was a mother. She had her first in 1930 and her second in 1933 at a time when when women were expected by culture and by their husbands to stay home after they had children. Louise did something very modern, something working parents, both fathers and mothers, can appreciate today, she tried to have it all, you know, juggling her personal ambitions, which she had, with her love for her children, which she had. And, you know, she is forgotten, uh, almost. I'm uh, surprised. I mean, you, she, she won that trophy. Mm -hmm. um, you talk about her husband being a kind of a role model for modern guys. I mean, you're, this is radio, you're younger, 
<laughs> than I am. And so I know younger men are have been raised by my generation to treat women differently from the way all these women were treated. But he was really something to to let her. I mean, in those days, he would be letting her fly those planes. Well, that's true. And, you know, it's important to point out many of these characters that I mentioned, but also many of the other female aviators in this time did not get married. And it was because men weren't particularly keen on marrying someone who was bold and brash and who at times, like Louise Thaden, were more famous than they were. You know, I think a great many men still struggle with that today, sadly, but they certainly struggled with it in the 1930s. And 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 for that reason, many of these women uh, never got married. And that was really one of Ruth Nichols, you know, long regrets. You know, she she did regret that she never got married. She did regret that she never had children. Well, and then, of course, Amelia um, Earhart from Boston. She was a social worker. These women have such different backgrounds. One's a high school dropout. One was a big Ivy College graduate. Um, but Amelia Earhart's the one we know the most about. I didn't realize how much influence George Putnam had in making her into Amelia Earhart. And that last name may be familiar to to listeners. You know, George Putnam of Putnam Publishing in New York was one of the great media magnates of his time in the late 1920s, early 1930s. It is George Putnam who discovers Amelia Earhart working as a social worker in Boston and puts her on a plane initially flown by men across the ocean. She was just cargo. Yeah, she she was a passenger. And, you know, it is to Amelia's credit, though, that she knows that this flight across the ocean in 1928 flown by men, while it makes her the first woman to fly the ocean, she knows that she really hasn't done anything. And, and she says that. She says, I was just cargo. I was like a sack of potatoes. And she will spend the rest of what will be a very short life, just nine more years, um, making daring flights as an answer to her critics, because Amelia Earhart did have critics. And she did make it. I mean, I think that's part of history, not to give away your book, but she did make it across the ocean. She does. You know, four years later, she will fly it alone. She will fly it solo from Newfoundland uh, to Ireland. And she's the first woman to do it. Correct. I think you said she was 14th, though, by the time 13 other men had done it. The, the names of these um, races, Powder Puff Derby, things like that, I mean, I guess it was showmanship. Well, that name to me is really interesting, the Powder Puff Derby that you mentioned. This was the first female airplane race, the one that actually led me to this story, the one I, I found in that book. And, you know, it's in 1929, and its official name was the National Women's Air Derby. It was a race that was going to be transcontinental from Los Angeles to Cleveland. It is on day two of that race, day two, that the newspapers, the male reporters, begin calling it something else. They call it the Powder Puff Derby, which is a reference to a popular, you know, makeup applique of the time. And, you know... Like they're, while they're flying, they're going to be looking in their compact mirrors and well, right. it's, patting their it cheeks. Was, it was a demeaning, it was a, it was a way to demean them. It was a, a way to denigrate them, a way to take a shot at them, even while they were flying across the country in the face of storms and sandstorms, alleged sabotage. One of them 
you know, would die in a crash in this race. And here were the male reporters, you know, you know, trying to knock them down a peg by calling it the powder puff derby. You know, this term powder puff is still applied today, say, to women's intramural football in college and things like that. It was not intended to be a compliment in but 1929. But Fly Girls wasn't quite as um, demeaning. You know, this title really is is a reference to the bravado. You know, when men like Charles Lindbergh would would show up on an airfield, they were called flyboys. It was it was it was a name that had gravitas. It it was a name that meant they were courageous. You were a flyboy, and you know. These women, you know, were the same. They were just as brave, just as bold. You know, they were fly girls. And by the early 1940s, you know, they they will be calling themselves that. Well, these planes, I had no idea. These planes, how, what courage it must have taken for anybody to go up in these things. They were made out of paper and glued on fabric. That's right. Many planes in the in the 1920s, in particular, were made out of wood, and they were uh, covered in a linen that was stretched tight, and then covered in a lacquer to make them firm. This was because the greatest obstacle to flight in this time was weight—the weight of the plane—and so the goal was to make a plane as light as possible. There was some debate in the mid 1920s about whether mer- metal airplanes large metal airplanes would ever take flight, which of course would be ironic to us today. And these metal planes, excuse me, these wooden planes, you know, failed all the time. Uh, They fell apart. The cloth fell off. The wings fell off. I mean, not just for the women, but you make a point that when it happened with the women, they blamed the women, but it happened to everybody. That was the, the state of the technology. That to me was one of the greatest insults, Sherry, that you just touched on. You know, when men crashed and when men died in the races in these planes, as they did all the time, they were treated as heroes. And they were often given grand tributes and memorials on the airfield that weekend with flowers and moments of silence and things like that. When women died or crashed in these races, they were often not given the most basic, decent human respect. And when to me, what was most insulting was they would be crashing for the same reasons as the men. The planes had failed. The wings had broken. Chunks of the plane had fallen off. Everyone had seen it happen. And still, the newspapers the next day would blame the women for it. Well, um, they also, because they didn't have the kind of uh, technology we have today, they got lost a lot. Sometimes you said they looked on the top of barns and they would have painted, you know, where they were, but they're flying in weather, clouds, whatever, and a lot of people would get lost in the midst of one of these races. People got lost all the time. You couldn't fly in low cloud cover. You couldn't fly in fog or rain or snow. Early on, you couldn't fly at night. Uh, You needed to have, at least initially, you know, landmarks on the ground to get across this country. And, you know, the, the reference you made, uh, the, the names painted on barns, this was called air marking. Air marking in the early 1930s was really the only way for female aviators to make money outside of the races. They couldn't get hired as commercial airline pilots at these nascent airlines. They couldn't get those jobs. 
They worked as air markers, identifying barns where you could paint the name of a town so that if a pilot was lost, he or she could look down and get their bearings again. We don't have much time left. Uh, just two more questions. What what did some of these women have in common? They had such different backgrounds, socioeconomically and so on, but you kind of found that they had a few things in common. I did. You know, to me, the thing that strikes me the most is even when they were young girls, you know, quite young, they knew they were different. They knew they weren't the little girls that their traditional mothers and fathers wanted them to be. And they would, you know, you know, really try to break down barriers even as girls, you know, not wanting to wear dresses or high heels, you know, you know, instead wanting to wear overalls and get dirty with the boys in their neighborhoods or learning how to work on the car engines. Even if you were a debutante. Exactly. <laughs> like Ruth Nichols. Well, also, what what's the importance of your story? I mean, it's fascinating to read. It, it could be like a novel. I mean, you cut back and forth between the different women. But but what what is the message for us today? There are a couple of different messages here. You know, I think the overall message for anyone here is this is a great underdog story, you know, a forgotten underdog story. These women flew through adversity after adversity, you know, entrenched discrimination and the deaths of their friends. They kept going and they would triumph in the end, beating the men at their own game. If they had quit, if they had stopped, female pilots who earned the right to fly in World War II would not have happened. It's all connected. And it was because these women refused to stop, refused to quit, refused to abide by the absurd rules of their age. And they opened the door for others to be able to do this. Um, as we said, it's a bestseller, <laughs> which must be nice for your wife and kids. Very um, exciting. And the reviewers love it. Um, I got this one from the Times. A book reviewer said, Fly Girls is feminist history of the best kind. It describes individuals who did not submerge their identities in feminism, but employed feminism to achieve their identities as individuals. Interesting book. You've been listening to Writers Forum. We want to thank our guest this week, Keith O'Brien, author of Fly Girls, How Five Daring Women Defied All Odds and Made Aviation History. I'm Sherry Alexander for WRBH. <laughs>